Okay, well, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, honored guests, and even more honored panelists, good afternoon to you. Uh, my name is Gary Pinar, a Senior Research Manager with the Human Sciences Research Council. Um, it's my honor to welcome you all to this webinar this afternoon. Um, and I'll quickly just run through the, the program. Um, I'll give you a brief introduction to the book and tell you where um, it's available and, and how. Um, I'll introduce the format for the session, session um, with one or two changes. Um, and then we'll uh, invite the speakers to grill each other in response to their opening comments and participants to weigh in. Um, but before we do all of that, um, I'll introduce the speakers. Um, so um, if we can begin now um, with the introduction to the book um, that we're launching today, um, let me just see, first of all, that I can show it to you that it is real, it is alive and in print. Um, and it's also available um, at your local bookstore around the world and also online. I'll give you some more details now, but let me just tell you first a little bit about the book. Um, the fourth industrial revolution is having a major impact on all aspects of life, both in South Africa and globally. The chief technological developments associated with the fourth industrial revolution offer much promise for human development and improvements in quality of life. But as the book explores, these technologies are a double-edged sword, bringing both benefits and some drawbacks, particularly in relation to the realization and enjoyment of fundamental human rights and freedoms. This book constitutes the first major investigation of the real and potential human rights implications of the fourth industrial revolution in South Africa, following the work of the SA Human Rights Commission in this area. It addresses issues such as unemployment, poverty and development and local government in the fourth industrial revolution. Um, also issues of bias, discrimination and the digital divide, internet rights and responsibilities, privacy and cybersecurity, predictive policing, surveillance and digital justice. Um, in doing so, the book offers an in-depth review of the current and emerging regulatory frameworks relating to human rights and the 4IR related technologies in South Africa. It um, includes contributions from social scientists, ethicists and human rights experts. It has a foreword from the Human Rights Commission CEO, Advocate Siliso Tepanyani. Um, and we believe the book will be of wide interest to policymakers, academics, and all members of the public concerned about the future of South African constitutionalism generally. Um, has significant implications for that. Um, let me tell you briefly about where the book is available. Um, in, um, in South Africa, it's already available online and in local bookstores um, who already have stock or can place orders as soon as they receive them from you. There is um, a special launch offer and um, it's, there's a 20% discount if you use a particular hashtag, and I'll put that um, in the chat for everybody in a short while. Um, in the USA and its territories, it's available through Lynn Reno, and in Europe and the UK, it's available through Eurospan. Direct orders um, can be placed with the publisher, which is the HSRC Press, 
by email to orders at blueweaver.co.za and I'll put that also in the chat so that people can refer to that and, and click on the link. Um, so um, I then need to just let you know briefly about um, the, the speakers and I'll introduce um, each of them to you. Um, so first of all, let me just go through these. Um, oh, sorry, about the book. Just one more thing about the book. The list of authors in, there's been a large number of contributors to the book and I'll list them in alphabetical order. Um, Fadler Adams from the SA Human Rights Commission, Rachel Adams, um, the lead author and panelist here today with us, Mark Gaffley, also a panelist, um, Michael Gastro, um, Nokatula Olorinju, who unfortunately can't be with us as a panelist because of load shedding, but we do have a, a video of her, um, of her presentation. Um, yours truly, one of the contributors, Yuri Ramkasun, also from the Human Rights Commission, uh, Talisa Tipanyani, and also Chanel van der Berg, also from the from the Human Rights Commission. Um, so those are uh, those are the authors of the book, and then I'll uh, just introduce you to the to the speakers, um, to the panelists, with uh, with one addition, and then I'll ask them to to kick off. So the panelists today. Um, as I've mentioned, uh, Nokatula Ulurunju, uh, we know her as a, an ex-colleague, uh, as Tuli, um, who unfortunately, as I said, can't be with us, but we do have um, a video from her. Uh, she's an attorney and a researcher who holds degrees of LLM and um, LLB in cyber law and ICT law from Wits University. She has engaged in research in the areas of the judiciary, artificial intelligence, data protection and privacy, gender rights, equality, land rights, and public interest litigation. She is currently pursuing a PhD in constitutional law and AI at UCT. Um, Advocate Taliso Tipanyani, um, I'm sure everybody will know him very well, um, has uh, a BSc and LLM in human rights and another LLM in corporate law. He's currently the CEO of the SA Human Rights Commission and former Chief Executive Officer of the Safer South Africa Foundation. He has spent 13 years um, and more at the Human Rights Commission, firstly as Head of Research, mainly responsible for monitoring socioeconomic rights and access to information rights before becoming CEO. He formerly lectured law at the University of the Western Cape, Columbia University Law School in New York, Ramapo College of New, New Jersey, um, and has numerous publications on human rights issues and many, very many conference papers in over, delivered in over 20 countries. He's currently an advisory board member of the Council for the Advancement of the South African Constitution, KSAC, and a former board member of the Open Democracy Advice Center, um, which is a small piece of history that we share and the Children's Institute. Mark Gaffley, another of our panelists, is a, an admitted attorney, and at present he's reading for his PhD in jurisprudence, also at UCT, where his research focuses on the ethical implications of algorithms as they are applied in society. He has broad startup in-house legal and research and advisory experience, 
gained leading local and international companies and think tanks, including Uber, Take-A-Lot, um, and the HSRC. And uh, most recently, I think if I have this correct, Mark, and please correct me, um, at Simple Capital, where he currently serves as general counsel. He also runs his own research and advisory consultancy. So Mark, when you speak, please uh, correct me if I have your, your last um, reference incorrect. Uh, uh, simple, correct. Uh, correct, Simple Capital, great, thank you. And then um, Professor Sizwe Snail Kamatuze is a senior partner at Snail Attorneys. Um, he has an LLB from University of Pretoria in tax and cyber law, an LLM from UNISA, and is currently registered for his LLD with the University of Fort Hare. He's recently been appointed as adjunct professor in the Mercantile Law Department at Nelson Mandela University Law Faculty. He is, as you may know, um, a member of the South African Information Regulator and is also a member of the Film and Publications Appeal Board um, since 2016 and 2017, respectively. And then finally, my colleague, um, Rachel Adams, the Chief Research Specialist within the Impact Center at the HSRC. She leads various um, pieces of work and research projects exploring the impact of artificial intelligence on African societies. She's also an advisor to the UK government on algorithmic bias and data ethics, and is also the author of um, a recent publication, Transparency, New Trajectories in Law. Um, and she is also an editor at the South African Journal on human rights, a very prominent South African and global publication. So um, thank you for allowing me to introduce your panelists to you. And I'll now hand over to, to Rachel, who will give us a, a five minute interview. And then um, our IT colleagues will, will then after that show um, Tuli, uh, Tuli's short video um, because she can't be with us at the moment. So. First of all, to give us an overview of the book, Rachel, um, the floor is yours, if that's the right term. Yes. <laughs> thank you so, thank you so much, um, Gary. It's it's really really incredible to to think where we are at, having produced a book really quite quickly. So, just to give you a bit of background. Um, the Human Rights Commission, I think, you know, late in 2019, identified the fourth industrial revolution as this kind of major paradigm that will have an effect on human rights. But what that effect would be, what precisely that effect would look like was, was yet unknown. And so the Human Rights Commission began a conversation with us around developing a research project that would seek to understand in, in collaborative and participatory ways how human rights were and may be affected um, by the 4IR and by all these related technologies. And the Human Rights Commission was doing something really quite novel here for a national human rights institution. And it's not the first time they've done this. So I used to work uh, with the Human Rights Commission from 2008, and then there was a break, and then from 2014 to 2016. And during that time, uh, Fatla Adams was leading work around understanding the impact of the internet on human rights and what rights look like in a digital um, and online space. And there was this idea about, well, human rights online is the same as human rights offline. 
And that was all well and good. And these kind of internet technologies are what we associate with the third industrial revolution. But the fourth industrial revolution became this kind of major policy paradigm in South Africa from about 2018. And we had to consider what is it that is different about the fourth industrial revolution to the third industrial revolution? And these are questions, a lot of it was to do with the growth, the exponential growth of these new technologies and how they became connected and interfaced with one another to create this kind of massive network of connected devices and technologies and data systems and networks. But there was another question about autonomy, and this was specific to, to artificial intelligence, which is like the main technology associated with the fourth industrial revolution. And artificial intelligence purported to establish something called machine autonomy. And what machine autonomy meant for questions around human autonomy and human dignity, community self-determination, state sovereignty, rule of law, the ability of a state to protect the fundamental rights of its citizens had not been thought through in a systematic way, especially in a kind of new constitutional order that happens to be one of the leading constitutional orders in the world. So, as I said, the Human Rights Commission was doing something really novel here for a, for a national human rights institution to try and understand what are the impacts of of, of the 4IR and related technologies on human rights, what new human rights challenges can we anticipate? Are there any opportunities to further the human rights agenda that these technologies offer? What are the kind of existing frameworks that we have that offer, do they offer opportunities to protect and promote human rights? Do we need to create new opportunities? And these are kind of all the the seeding ideas um, for the work that we did together with the Human Rights Commission that, that eventually resulted in this book. And this book is, it is a, a first of a kind. It's the first book anywhere in the world to give a systematic scholarly uh, overview of how the fourth industrial revolution is and may impact on human rights across the broad spectrum of human rights. So taking this far beyond the path privacy paradigm that had been the dominant paradigm by which people around the world had understood digital technologies and their relationship to human rights. And it was a really quite exciting collaborative process that was done in really quite a short time. So we co-hosted a workshop with the Human Rights Commission in March 2020. We had a manuscript Somehow after the hideousness of, of what lockdown was and what lockdown entailed, that hard lockdown, that sort of dark period in the, in, the, in, the, in the middle of 2020 last year. And then I must sort of really thank the HSRC press who in a phenomenally short amount of time put this book together, put the production together, did the editing, produced the book that we have before us and ultimately will be available open access in a couple of months. So much thanks to Jeremy and Tunzi and Shanice and Charlotte for the, for the fantastic work that was done here. And the last thing I want to just quickly say is that we hope this is a first edition. As 
we do not yet know the full impact of the fourth industrial revolution here in South Africa or anywhere in the world. And we do not yet have all the kind of constitutional and legislative frameworks by which to address some of the human rights challenges that it's prompting and causing. There's going to be new work uh, and new material. And we hope that a second edition will be led by the emerging scholars that have been part of this work particularly Mark and, 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 and Tuli, it's a pity Tuli can't be with us today. Tuli is doing a PhD at the University of Cape Town looking at a constitutional approach to the regulation of artificial intelligence in South Africa. And Mark is also doing a PhD at the University of Cape Town to explore the impact of artificial intelligence on human autonomy and morality. So we're really hoping that this will be a kind of longer term project that will involve all sorts of people as they engage in these kinds of questions and become a leading framework for how we address some of the major issues that the 4IR is posing in society today. So I'll leave it there, Gary, and hand over uh, to the other colleagues who, who, who are here and who can contribute. Thank you. Right. Thank you very much, Rachel. Um, according to the, the uh, program, uh, we need to ask um, Moses now to please flight the video that uh, Tuli has kindly recorded in anticipation of the load shedding which she's experiencing right now. Um, Moses, are you ready to, to run that, uh, that now? Thank you, Moses. Moses, I'm not hearing audio yet. I'm not sure if anyone else can. Give it one more try and nope. um, yeah, hi, Moses. Can you give it one more try, please? Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry Gary. Um, it's fine. I must just share it uh, with the song. Oh, fine. All right. Thank you. That's okay. okay. And one thing that's quite clear is that privacy is a cross-cutting issue across all aspects of, you know, the topics within the chapter. But in particular relation to cybersecurity, I think what stand, stands out the most, I would say, is that at times they had competing interests, at times they complemented each other, at times they contradicted each other, but I think for the most part, privacy and cybersecurity work together. And we, in this chapter, you know, we, we, we looked at the international frameworks. For instance, we started with the 1948 Universal Declaration, and we traced it up until the United Nations, the UNHRC, the 2019 resolution was taken on the rights to privacy in the digital age. Many African constitutions do have the, the right to privacy, but I think South Africa, you know, really elevates the concept of privacy and it somewhat makes our jobs easier when we have to discuss the ideology of privacy or the idea of privacy, especially when you have case law that tackles, you know, this particular section under section 14. And we traced it from the international, 
right up until the regional in the AU, you know, and then into South Africa, the constitution, section 14, as mentioned before, and the, the ECTA, you know, the act, POPIA as well. So the, the chapter gives a brief overview of, on privacy. And it's particularly important because it's tough to discuss cybersecurity without discussing privacy initially. And so when we shift into cybersecurity, we look at, you know, international legislation, you know, like the GDPR and how you have concepts like privacy by design and the idea of data trusts. We talk about that in, in this particular chapter as well, the reporting of cyber crimes and South Africa's cyber crime bill, which was, you know, detached from the cyber crime and cyber securities bill, which is a good idea because, you know, it's it's best to start off perfecting one before lumping them together and just making a mess out of things. But those, as all the points I've mentioned prior to this, those are the points of note in the chapter. And it's important to also note that this idea, I'm sure other speakers will point to this, but this idea of human rights in, you know, for IR is, is a growing idea. It's a dynamic and organic idea. It's growing. And as we get more information about it, we, you know, we will contribute towards the knowledge base. And what is also quite clear is the value of cybersecurity and privacy working together with all the stakeholders involved, with the HSRC, with the Human Rights Commission, with the CSIR, for example, there are a lot of stakeholders that have much to contribute to protecting the privacy and to upholding um, cybersecurity in South Africa. And I mean, this is just a brief overview of this chapter. I encourage people to read and engage with it. It's not perfect, but it is a starting point where conversations can be had around this issue. I thank you so much for this opportunity and for taking the time to listen. And I hope the entire book launch is as spectacular as I, it always should be. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Moses. Uh, appreciate that. Um, may I now call on um, our next speaker, Mark Gaffley, um, to address us on um, predictive policing and digital justice. Mark, over to you, please. Uh, cool. Thanks. Thanks, Gary, for the introduction. Um, and yeah, I suppose just as a start, uh, good afternoon, everyone listening. Um, it's a bit weird uh, not being able to see anyone. But uh, yeah, anyway, I suppose to get to to get to my my chapter. Um, yeah, I think very briefly to start, it's 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 worth mentioning what kind of perked my curiosity in this field in the in the first place. Um, and yeah, I'm talking more generally on on the influence AI has on our daily lives. Um, and I think as a contributor to this book, uh, I might come in in a slightly different angle because I've spent most of my career uh, in tech companies. Um, and so obviously there I'm looking at, at how AI is deployed for commercial gain. 
Um, so yeah, I suppose on that point about six or seven years ago when I was working at Uber, um, there were discussions underway about analytical tools that uh, were being developed that would identify um, drivers on the platform uh, who were driving in, in a kind of manner where they were likely to cause accidents. Um, and some of these drivers would be removed from the platform before they had even had an accident. Um, and yeah, so at the time, I suppose I found this, this quite fascinating because, and, and to kind of put a theme to this chapter, um, these people are, are being in a sense accused of something uh, before it's even taken place. Um, so yeah, that, that, that brings up uh, a multitude of, of kind of ethical questions, um, which, which never really sat well with me. And I suppose prompted this journey into, into researching the way we look at or, or use the technologies we use today. Um, so, so to speak to that, um, you know, my input in, in, in this book, uh, as has been mentioned, was to look at predictive policing, um, surveillance technologies, and digital justice. Um, and similar to what I've already mentioned, the, the overarching theme I uncovered in the research here is this general shift to, to a sort of pre-crime analysis um, using data. So, so here we're, we're monitoring, disrupting, and coercing targeted populations uh, for threats that they may pose and not necessarily the threats that they do pose. Um, and this seems to be the, the kind of crux of where, you know, the creep into human rights occurs. Um, so I suppose very briefly then to speak uh, to the three broad topics, um, on, on, on surveillance technologies, uh, we have this, this, this reliance on, on, well, in fact, it would be for surveillance technologies and predictive policing, but we have this reliance on, on police data sets. Um, and particularly in a country with South Africa's past, uh, this has the potential to reinforce certain, you know, negative preju prejudices. Um, so one of the examples that, that really stood out to me uh, from the research is uh, these contrasting approaches that you get in, say, Cape Town and Gauteng, um, where Cape Town surveillance technologies are being deployed into historically high crime areas. Um, and in, in Joburg, the technology is being deployed into your sort of more uh, predominantly white affluent areas. Um, so this brings up a, a couple of considerations, and I suppose the big one here is, is, is who within these contexts is being uh, identified as candidates for crimes. Um, and I suppose also, you know, for, for the historic, for historically high crime areas, this uh, belief that crime will take place in these, in these areas. Um, and that kind of moves into the, the predictive policing point and, and, and one that I wanted to kind of raise here again as just a, a kind of point of interest is uh, for these police data sets, um, what, what kind of sets them apart from your, from your other, let's say, insurance or uh, even if, if you're using data sets to, to look at shopping, you know, shopping uh, uh, preferences is here we also have the, the data input is, is the actual police. You know, they are the ones uh, choosing who to arrest, who to let off the hook, 
you know, uh, where they might arrest someone. So, so you have these data sets that are being informed by the decisions um, of the people who end up using the data sets. And this again can, can kind of lead to this, this cycle of, of reinforcing certain prejudices. Um, and another consideration there, which, which is obviously addressed in the book is, uh, you know, what is the, you know, the sort of psychological effect, uh, and obviously this would flow into the human rights implications of, of a police, uh, policeman who is going to an area where, you know, the algorithms and the data have said that, you know, at X time, uh, you are likely to encounter somebody who, you know, is likely to com commit a crime. Um, so we get these kind of knock-on issues that 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 need, uh, you know, further exploration and and, and consideration. Um, and then just briefly to to kind of wrap up the digital justice side of of, of the book and the the kind of questions that it explores. Um, I thought, and, and particularly this year with the the sort of forced movement of everything onto Zoom, we have the the kind of comical side of 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 this digitization of the courtroom where um, a lawyer's child left, left the cat profile on his Zoom account and he had to inform the judge that you know, he was not in fact a cat. Um, but, but there are obviously more, more salient human rights issues here. Um, and, and, and the kind of serious ones are how we, we deploy uh, algorithms in, in, in the courtrooms, um, particularly I suppose in the, in the name of efficiency. Um, and, and what you get here is then, you know, sort of need to look at, again, the data that's being used and how it's being used. And uh, an example I found, you know, sort of perked my curiosity here was uh, this company I found that actually looks at uh, a particular judge um, and is able to break down his or her uh, historical sort of uh, reliance on, on on cases and which cases they use and and which parts of those cases and and you can just kind of think of the unfair advantage that one would get uh, in a situation where they have access to the software where they basically understand the judge's decisions before he even uh, consciously knows that he's going to make them uh, and the other party who who doesn't have access to this, this technology technology, you know, might be none the wiser. Um, so yeah, I suppose to wrap up, because I, I think I've gone a bit over five minutes, but you can kind of get this idea of all the thought provoking questions, particularly around this chapter. Um, I think uh, the, the 20 odd pages that are in there is perhaps not enough to explore all these, all these deeper ethical questions that arise. Um, but yeah, certainly, certainly quite fascinating. And I would encourage uh, you know anyone who's interested in the topic to pick up the book and 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 dive a bit deeper into this thank you thank you very much mark um yes tricky issues and uh, as you say these are some of the, the the ethical issues that confront us in so many areas of of ai and the fourth industrial revolution um may i call now on um Advocate Tipanyani, um, who wrote the foreword to the book, uh, to offer his comments in response to the speakers. Um, I haven't yet heard from Michael whether he's ready. Um, I've, um, but um, Advocate Tipanyani, if you'd like to offer some thoughts first, we can 
slot Michael in afterwards, um, prof, possibly after, um, after Prof uh, Snail. Thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, uh, Gary, and uh, to all the panelists, as well as uh, the viewers uh, who are attending this uh, launch. And I want to start by saying that I really want to thank uh, you guys, as well as uh, HSRC, uh, for getting us here in terms of the, the book. Uh, of course, we came with the idea and the conference, but the final product uh, you know, will be helpful in taking us uh, with, uh, going forward. Now, I just want to say, you know, a few weeks ago, we appeared before uh, the Portfolio Committee of Justice, to which we report to as, as a Human Rights Commission. And uh, out of the blue, I asked a question, uh, what is the Human Rights Commission's position on 4IR? And uh, likely at that time, I had the book, and I said, well, uh, this is what we're doing in collaboration uh, with their colleagues. So there's definitely an interest uh, from the Portfolio Committee of Justice as to how a body like us is going to deal uh, with the issues of uh, uh, human rights uh, from the perspective of 4IR. And therefore, that's quite encouraging for us as a Human Rights Commission, because clearly uh, there is now an expectation uh, by Parliament as to how we will be tackling the human rights challenges uh, coming out of uh, 4IR. And therefore, we're quite grateful uh, for that. Now, uh, Gary, you know what also inspired us uh, to get involved in this issue really was, you know, the impact uh, of, of, of technology, uh, positively as well as negatively. Uh, we are quite aware of the positive impacts of technology for R3, uh, R or whatever, but also the negative aspects of this. And uh, during my readings, I came across this uh, quotation by Ngugi Watingo, which is also there in the book that the wealth of science, technology, and arts should enrich people's lives and not enable the slaughter. And I think right through human history, we have seen uh, the negative aspects as well as the positive aspects of technology. And now just thinking now, for example, you know, uh, the impact of the gun or, or gunpowder on us uh, in Africa, you know, how we got colonized uh, through the battle of the gun and the massive challenges that, that, that has had on us. And therefore, really the need and an ongoing need for all of us to ensure that, you know, as Gugi Watinga was saying, that we should really ensure that uh, uh, technology does not really uh, undermine people's lives, undermines human rights, but it's actually used to advance the quality of life. And therefore, this book, therefore, is a useful contribution in this regard. Now, from our side, you know, uh, you know, having listened to colleagues and having that a little bit more again on these issues, I think going forward as the Human Rights Commission, there's a need for us to help, you know, to develop a, a four-hour human rights charter for South Africa, which will basically help to deal with these issues. And I think that charter should have uh, three elements. There's need for greater awareness about uh, four-hour and technologies on, 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 and the impact of that on human rights issues, both positive and negative, and also both from the consumers and the producers. I think there needs to be a greater awareness uh, of this technology and its implications on human rights by all of us. So a lot of my awareness has to be raised, uh, education right across. And the second thing has to be greater monitoring you know, of the impact uh, of the uh, 4IR on human rights issues by all relevant uh, bodies which are involved uh, in, in monitoring uh, at different levels. And then lastly, I think there has to be greater enforcement uh, of, uh, you know, of the 
the, the consequences, uh, you know, which uh, are necessary for those who then violate or use for are to undermine uh, human rights. And therefore this also requires um, greater collaboration, you know, between bodies like us as a human rights commission, but also other regulatory bodies like the, uh, the you know, the information regulator uh, and many other bodies, which also the last chapter of the book also talks about that. And I think this is the only way we can really move forward as a country to ensure that this technology does indeed advance uh, human rights and not undermines human rights. So we as a human rights commission will continue really uh, uh, to contribute on this thing. I hear Rachel say that there should be a second edition and definitely Okay, um, sorry folks, we seem to have a frozen feed um, from Advocate Tipignani's uh, camera. Oh, sorry, Advocate Tipignani, you were frozen for a moment. Could you go back just about a minute or so in your remarks, please? Okay, the, uh, your video feed seems to have frozen. Siliso, can you hear me? Okay, uh, all right. Siliso, like uh, yes, I think it, maybe he'll need to log on. Yes. Um, but while while he's offline, um, may I take this opportunity just to invite one of the other book uh, authors and contributors um, to to just say a few words about his chapter on development, poverty, and inequality in the context of the fourth industrial revolution. Professor Snail, I hope you don't mind if we um, ask you just to put your remarks on hold for a moment while um, Michael Gastro speaks. Um, I'm just going to introduce Michael briefly to the uh, to participants. Um, he is a member of the Presidential Commission on the Fourth Industrial Revolution, um, which is, I think, quite a significant advisory role. And then also, as I said, of the, the first chapter in, in this book. Michael, would you like to offer some comments at this point? Uh, Michael, are you able to activate your camera and your microphone? Not hearing you at the moment. Sorry, I think... Um... There we go. Oh. Tarbo needs to just activate it for him. Uh, yeah, I think he's. I think Michael's now live and and enabled. So please go ahead, Michael. Thanks. You've got also about five minutes. Thanks. Hi, Gary. Uh, can you hear me? Yes. Yes, I can. Thank you. Hopefully, Good. everyone else can. All right. I think my camera's off, but I'll, I'll proceed. Um, <clears throat> so what I really wanted to reflect on is the the enormous utility of this publication. Uh, in the policy and legislative and regulatory debates that are happening. So when these debates happen in the, in the presidential commission, within the DSI, within the DTI, uh, within the Department of, of Communications and Digital Technologies, when, when AI became uh, a broadly debated topic, there were a lot of priorities and a lot of debate about what we foreground and what we back put you know what we put in the background and as, as these debates played out there were priorities that were tabled we wanted economic growth 
We wanted to grow capabilities. We wanted to strengthen the national system of innovation. We wanted to take advantage of the opportunities that present themselves, address some of the gaps and weaknesses that were there in the system, uh, grow our capabilities to develop and use the tech um, and develop appropriate regulation that has actually caught up with the tech and isn't behind it. Michael, are you, are you back with us? You are. And, and we have video from you as well. Great. Hi. Uh, so, Lisa, I'll come back to you once Michael has completed his remarks, if that's okay. Thank you for rejoining us, Lisa. Please go ahead, Michael. Yeah. Okay, I'm moving back to attendees as soon as it's done with the presentation. Because this side, I just need the video. Is it fine with you, or can I leave it like that? Tava, you can leave Michael on the panel. Yeah, leave Thank Michael you. on. Thank you. Right, yeah, so, thank you. Thank you. Okay, Michael, so, thank you. Yeah, so there were a lot of priorities that, that, that you know, we had to think about, and there's a lot of debates and different parties uh, bring their issues to the table. But the point is, however we proceed in terms of legislation and policy, we can't proceed in a way that, viola that violates human rights. So the question of human rights comes to bear on, on every single decision and every single piece of legislation that is proposed and every single piece of policy that is put on the table. And this book provides a reference point when the debate reaches that stage. And the complexity of it is immense, which, which is why a detailed book that addresses this specific question is helpful because the dynamics, the technological dynamics, the political dynamics, the economic dynamics, the capability landscape is different in, the, in each domain, whether it's finance or health or social media or, or security um, and whether they're local facing or international facing activities. So, you know, reflecting on, on these human rights really will contribute to the policy debates that are happening. And, and this, this relates both, both to rights such as the right to, to privacy and also progressive rights like uh, one would, one would aim to address under the rubric of, of uh, inequality and unemployment. So uh, overall, the technology has enormous potential to drive a wedge into society by exacerbating inequality. There's a lot of thinking about ways to prevent that. Uh, and there's also a lot of thinking about how specific rights play out in terms of, for example, data privacy and social media use, data privacy in the health sector, genetic data, health records, surveillance, um, and none of these can be truly addressed without a rights consideration. Thank you very much, Michael. Uh, yes, indeed. I think we can see the practicalities um, of rights impact and implications. Um, just in the process of trying to register in South Africa for a vaccine. Um, if you do or don't have access uh, to digital media, um, can one use that platform? And uh, yes, we're finding that that does, of course, have an impact, not just on the individuals um, who are in need of the vaccine, but on the whole of society, um, because we need to look after each other in this situation. So the potential for inequality 
uh, growing rather than diminishing, um, has a potential also to impact on all of us. Um, even if we are privileged to, to get the vaccine early, um, other members of our family might not uh, because other members of our community cannot. Um, one small aspect of that. So Michael, thank you for stepping in. Um, Salisu, I'm very pleased to say, is back online. Salisu, I'm sorry that um, we lost the connection, uh, but we're very glad that you've come back. And we invite you please to continue with your remarks and complete your remarks. Thank you. Um, thanks, Gary. Um, I was almost actually at the end of the, my remarks before I got cut off. Cut off. So I really don't know what else you missed, but I'll just say, you know, uh, I really appreciate this process and we as a Human Rights Commission will continue uh, because there's definitely a need for us to develop a stronger mechanisms to protect uh, the violations of human rights, which will come through uh, for our, but also the need for us to collaborate a lot more. And of course, uh, for I, I, the COVID-19 has also, you know, highlighted some of the challenges around the digital or, te or technological divide, which we have to be quite careful of uh, as a commission. So uh, I just want to say, you know, thank you and let's continue uh, on this uh, important journey of protecting human rights. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Salisa, thank you very much. Um, yes, I think you've, um, there certainly were, um, um, the important pointers there to the need for collaboration. Um, this is a, um, as Michael pointed out, um, there are many faces to this issue, many dimensions to it. Um, and we, uh, I think we appreciate the need for collaboration between the institutions that do have the ability to monitor um, and regulate this space. Um, as complex as it is, I think collaboration, broad collaboration is important. I think that's a, a good opportunity to segue into Professor Snail's um, comments and remarks now. Professor, thank you for allowing us to defer your involvement and participation. Um, please go ahead now, activate your mic and your camera. Thank you. Thank you very much um, for inviting me to this important book launch. Um, on the one hand, I, I believe this book is extremely important as it deals with human rights. And on the other hand, it deals with, you know, the fourth industrial revolution in other words, it deals with matters which I, in my own space, have been referring to as cyber law, ICT law, but it, it's always been about commercial issues. It's always been about electronic contracts, electronic money, electronic copyright, electronic um, criminality. It's always been about, you know, commercial issues. What, what I really, really liked about this book, when I opened it, it, it talked to me about the fourth industrial revolution, what is happening in South Africa, and then a, a, a nice, you know, literally sliding into data protection vis-a-vis -vis the right to, to privacy, and then going further into other rights, such as socioeconomic rights and the, and, and, and the like. So, you know, for, for me, I think this, this is not just an, an attempt, but I think this book is, is one of the first comprehensive studies on how electronic 
um, fourth industrial revolution, and, I, and I'm linking the word electronic fourth industrial revolution for a reason, because you know when one thinks for IR, one thinks electronic. So I'm I'm, I'm bringing them together, and and I think you know once I was done reading the book, which by the way is here, <laughs> um, you know I I really had a comprehensive um, understanding as to how the contributors, um, as well as the editors, saw the convergence between human rights and the fourth industrial revolution. And I just like the, the nifty way um, in which everything has been crafted together, on the one hand, not being a boring law book, and on the other hand, not being a, a jargonistic technical book. So plain legal language, very accessible. So I think I think those are my comments thus far. Maybe I can give further comments um, as the uh, panel progresses. Thank you. Um, thank you so much, Professor. Um, I think for making that that important link and um, yes, just I think highlighting another dimension within which uh, the fourth industrial revolution is having an impact um, uh, through commerce um, and commercial relationships and the power imbalances that arise um, in that context. Um, we've reached the part now of, the, of the, uh, the program where we're going to invite the speakers to respond uh, to each other, to ask each other questions, to ask each other to unpack certain issues that might have grabbed their attention. And so for this uh, stage of proceedings, I'd like to ask all of the panelists to, and respondents to please put their cameras and microphones on um, so that we can see you while we hear you. Um, thank you very much. Um, and Michael and Mark are back as well. So thank you very much, colleagues. Um, is there anybody who'd like to uh, perhaps pose a, a question or a pick up on a comment um, made by one of your fellow panelists. Um, we, I think um, you know, there, there are perhaps a number of issues that we could, that we could highlight, um, including, for example, you know, is there a, um, is there, are our institutions um, adequately capacitated? We talk, we've talked about um, collaboration, particularly between those two institutions that are um, represented here today, but we've also um, heard Advocate Tibanyani talk about a recent presentation to Parliament. Um, is there adequate understanding there? Um, is there enough um, of a grasp of the complexity and the, the scale of the implications of this industrial revolution? Um, so not just the regulatory and oversight institutions or the monitoring institutions, um, but the legislative and oversight body. Um, Gary, some... uh, yes. Gary, can I start to say, you know, um, Thank you know you. From, from our perspective, you know, when we began uh, this conference, the initiative of the idea, it was actually quite um, a concern for us that, you know, in view of the massive impact uh, for our art has on human rights, we were quite slow as a commission to, you know, to get into the space. But also, you know, when we start looking at, at the future and the need for us to collaborate 
with other uh, uh, bodies which are here to protect uh, democracy and human rights, we realize there's also a very low um, uptake about the challenges uh, which for IR is going to present as far as human rights are concerned. And, and, and therefore, I think on our side, there's definitely a need for greater awareness amongst the uh, constitutional bodies, statutory bodies, to, to be able to work together, to be able to deal much more effectively with the negative impacts uh, of this. Because if we're not careful, you know, looking at uh, how previous technologies actually undermine human rights, we'll be sitting here with a major problem. Secondly, the whole issue of the, you know, the, the digital divide, you know, the gaps between the rich and the poor, that we need to make sure that it's not only the rich who are going to benefit from the benefits of technology, but actually this is used to advance and also to, to advance the interests of all other uh, components of our society. And I think for me then that, that really creates a bigger challenge. And of course, we cannot collaborate uh, with, uh, with ourselves if we don't have a, a fair understanding of uh, what this means for, for all of us as, as constitutional bodies, but also even parliament itself. You know, apart from uh, the president's commission on 4IR, exactly what is the level of understanding by members of parliament in order to be able to do their work in protecting uh, our country and our people against the negative aspects. But at the same time, harnessing the positive aspects as well in order to advance our rights. I mean, as I was saying, COVID-19 is a challenge. And clearly it shows that, you know, if we were better advanced in dealing with, with COVID-19, we'll be having a greater uh, impact on protecting and advancing our rights as a country. Thanks. Thank you, Tuliso. Um, um, any other pan panelist or uh, commentator colleague who would like to respond to that or ask another question or raise another issue? Yeah, Gary, can I come in here? Sure, oh, Rachel. Sorry, Professor Snell. Let me, let me okay. go quickly. I, you know, I think one of the major things that we found when we, when we were doing this role is that there's significant fragmentation in the understanding of what the 4IR is and what its effects or opportunities are within society. And this happens at both a governmental level, and I can talk about the kind of different attitudes we are seeing coming out, but it also happens among communities and among different groups in society where there really isn't a strong enough understanding of how rights are affected, how data rights are affected, what people's data rights are in order to be able to then claim and exercise these rights. So we had kind of three main recommendations that came out of this report. And the first one was advocacy and building awareness among communities as to what the effects of the 4IR might be, how it might change their daily living, how it might implicate them in their lives, what data rights are, what rights mean within a digital context and how they can be claimed. And then secondly, around building capacity within institutions, particularly like the South African Human Rights Commission, other chapter nine bodies, the information regulator, to be able to receive and handle complaints, bearing in mind that there's little jurisprudence on which to base an interpretation of what the human rights issue may be in particular circumstances. And the Human Rights Commission has been doing really leading work around trying to unpack 
what their mandate means and what Caputo means, uh, the equality legislation in relation to social media, in relation to uh, bias and, and um, uh, hateful speech uh, on social media platforms. So, so this is also part of it. How do we interpret in purposive and agile ways the mandates and the legislation we have in order to be able to deal with, with the issues that we are confronted with. And then I think the third one is this, this, this fragmentation at the governmental level. And, and Michael can probably speak very well to this. The 4IR, artificial intelligence, the data economy is seen largely as a commercial opportunity for development and growth. It is that, it does offer that in very significant ways. And we can trace and track that but what we're not looking at, what we're not taking account of in, in adequately enough is the ethical challenges that are posed by these data-driven technologies and also how this economic growth will be concentrated. And so the economic opportunities and growth that we will see from AI and the 4IR will likely increase inequality between and within countries particularly for the African continent, and therefore exacerbate poverty. So we're looking at a really difficult long-term trend that is not being dealt with at all within kind of policy spaces. Instead, we have this idea that data is gold, we need to capitalize on it, we need to build up our industries, and, and that's well and good, but without the human rights understanding, without the understanding of the new challenges it will pose, the new forms of discrimination and inequality that will arise, therefore IR is only gonna serve a certain sector. It's only gonna enhance the privilege of those who are already privileged and deepen inequality and poverty. So I think it's really critical on a kind of national and global level to be bringing this side of the conversation in at a high level and at a strategic level too. I'll hand back to Professor Snell now. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. Uh, Professor Snell, you uh, were about to also um, make a, a comment yeah. or ask a question. I, I, I wanted to, to stress about how the fourth industrial revolution has actually brought about such big equalities. You know, the, the locus classicus of, of abuse of personal information is, is the case of, you know, the Black Sash versus uh, the Minister of Social Services. And, and, and that case really illustrated to us how the effects of the fourth industrial revolution can have an adverse effect on a particular class of persons or group of persons and how their personal information can be abused by way of an electronic process. I mean, I'm just thinking if it was 30, 40 years back and we were still using physical books or, or, or stamped books or whatever, you know, the, the abuse of the personal information in, in the Sasa matter would have never taken place. But now because the, the large amounts of personal information are taken into at various points of our lives, be it at commercial points, be it at public points, be it at government points. And unfortunately, this personal information is being now sold off as big data. And, and as the other speaker correctly said, 
it is big money. It is big business. And unfortunately, it is big business for those who are able to use the technologies to manipulate the personal information that we have. Um, and it is bad uh, news for those whose personal information gets abused. So like I said, you know, this whole concept of fourth industrial revolution and human topic that needs to be further explored. I mean, if one also looks at artificial intelligence, for instance, you know, artificial intelligence has got so many benefits um, from an academic perspective, from a commercial perspective. But the question is, once you start having machines that can learn things and things that are not necessarily correct, how do you unlearn those things? So, you know, these, these are some of the issues that one has faced in terms of the ethical dilemma of, of human rights and AI. In other words, on the one hand, just using personal information, you can use AI to, to make certain research, manipulate certain information and get certain results. But from a, a human rights perspective, that may then result in those data subjects um, being called, spammed, being sent SMSs and the likes because of the technology that was used in literally disseminating the personal information and in large quantities. And I think that is some of the issues that, that are being addressed here. Thank you very much. I um, just wanted to indicate that we do also want to um, have an, a session for um, our, the broader set of participants to to pose questions to the panel or to make comments. Um, but uh, before I invite Mark, um, I just wanted to pick up on something um, that I think has been referred to indirectly and talking about inequality in the context of, of, of children. And we're talking about, I'm, I'm referring to online bullying, for example. And I know that Siliso has been, was previously um, a member of the Children's Institute. And I just wonder, you know, whether children's information is adequately protected. Are they adequately protected? Are there additional protections online when it comes to their data and the kind of things that they can access? Um, but that, let, I just throw that out there and then ask Mark if he would like to comment at this point. Thank you. Um, no, I suppose, I mean, just a very brief comment on, on, the, on the general discussion is, is, you know, I suppose there's also this, this idea of uh, the efficiency of, of what the 4IR brings. Um, and often those efficiencies, you know, kind of trump all the potential negatives. And one of the, one of the examples in the book is, is you know, to, to get more boots on the ground in the police force that requires a lot of uh, cost investment training. Um, whereas to update the latest uh, software, you know, maybe takes five minutes. So I, I think the big thing here, and, and, and I suppose it speaks to kind of everything that, that we've spoken about today and the book more generally, um, is the importance of, of, you know, having human rights impact assessments done, you know, before the tech comes, uh, you know, into, into society, because once it's out there, it's really hard to, to, to sort of pull it back because the, 
the and you know as I spoke to earlier the kind of commercial benefit and the the efficiencies that that it brings across the board and across industries um, is obviously significant. Um, so yeah, that was just a a bit of an extra comment and 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 again a, a need for for looking at 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 at, at what's contained in the book um, before moving ahead in, in in you know these different sectors. Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Mark. Uh, I believe Michael uh, wants to share an idea or two. Thanks, Michael. Yeah, just, just some general points. Um, <clears throat> I just, you know, what's, what's satisfying about the, one of the satisfying things about this discussion is, is um, historically, the notion of human rights wasn't that closely tied to the notion of tech, of, of, of new technology. Uh, the focus was more on, on the legal, the political, the historical, the sociological. And as the world becomes increasingly technologically orientated, especially through COVID, um, drawing these links between human rights and tech is going to become increasingly important. Um, another and also picking up on this inequality issue, it's, it's something that's deeply ingrained into the process of thinking about solutions, um, thinking about poverty, inequality, and power. And, and broadly speaking, there's two areas that need solutions. The, the one is at the institutional level, where essentially those who have control over the tech, have control over the data, who have control over capabilities, and who can influence policy, have the power and stand to benefit. And that needs to be addressed at a, uh, at a policy level and in the political arena. And the other ones at the level of the public, where obviously, as mentioned, the digital divide is, is the key issue. And that can, you know, the, those who are on the, on the right side of the digital divide will have a totally different experience to those on the wrong side. And their issues raised are things like uh, technological unemployment, how do we get foresight of that? How do we deal with that? What is the skills development approach to mitigate that? Um, all, the, all those kinds of things come into play and need to be explicitly addressed because if left to themselves, the you know, power will create more power and vice versa. Another thing which I don't think we've really raised yet um, is the, this, this aphorism that data is the new oil, I, I fundamentally disagree with. I think oil should be left in the ground for starters, but it is a strategic resource. Maybe data is blood, maybe data is oxygen, maybe it's something else. Um, but Rachel has been hard at work in the development of new code of conduct for the Protection of Personal Information Act in the cloud and data policy. And these things are strategically and technologically central to this entire debate and have the potential to either curtail or expand human rights. Um, and that is something that the Human Rights Commission will need to keep a close eye on. Thank you, Michael. Yes, Talisa, would you like to respond? You're on, you're on mute, Talisa. Okay, sorry, yeah. Um, on two aspects, really. The issue of um, child rights, um, you know, we are, uh, doing a, a, a hearing uh, in Limpopo, you know, in that school where Elena committed suicide uh, following bullying. 
And uh, what is coming out is actually quite scary in terms of, you know, the level of uh, violence and bullying in schools. And now, you know, when you factor this, you know, in the context of what you're talking about now, that certainly this is still going to continue. And therefore, you know, those who are violating human rights at that level will find new tools. And therefore, 4IR also presents that opportunity for those who are going to continue uh, doing this. And therefore, there's really a need for us uh, to see how best we can uh, deal with this. We are currently also involved, and I hope my colleagues, uh, you know, will talk about this thing, Fadla and Chanel, on, our, on the work around uh, social media, how best we can regulate social media and maybe even develop an issue of a social media charter to address this. But earlier on, I was also saying that, you know, we also need to consider as the commission and also our partners, whether we should actually develop a 4IR human rights charter for South Africa. You know, along the lines of the Freedom Charter, we know exactly what, how that charter played. And I think we can also work together to basically come up with a charter here on 4IR, which will actually help all of us across our different levels of engagement uh, you know, as, as a blueprint for us as a country to best deal with this phenomenon. It's definitely going to be here, it's going to increase, and therefore it also have a, has, has, has a major impact on human rights issues. And therefore we need to also be uh, ready to be able to respond to those challenges, as well as, of course, maximizing the benefits in order to advance human rights further. Thanks. Okay, so thank you very much. Um, Panelists, and um, I just wanted to indicate we have about uh, 15 minutes left, and I'd like to spend some of our, our remaining time offering the opportunity to um, the broader participants to make comments or ask questions. I have one at the moment um, uh, received in the chat box. Um, it's, it's, uh, I'll read the question out. Given the wide reach of AI, is basing AI legislation on human rights the best way to unify AI global legislation? For example, AI in the Middle East, with its particular cultural norms, may legislate AI differently to Europe, or is a fragmented AI legislatory system an unavoidable consequence of the technology? Um, I'll leave it to panelists to decide who chooses to respond. Um, I think, Rachel, in the meantime, you wanted to respond to something else as well. No, I, want, I wanted to respond to this question because I think, oh, it's, okay. I think it's really, really interesting what's happening um, in different parts of the world around how they regulate or don't regulate um, artificial intelligence. So we are thinking about it from a constitutional and human rights point of view because of all the issues we've mentioned. In some ways, this echoes what's happening in the EU, which has developed the General Data Protection Regulation and it has a draft AI legislation at a European Union level. And it comes out of a fundamental rights framework. So in one sense, there's, there's a similarity there. But I think on the kind of global scene, there are a number of initiatives that's trying to put together a kind of global framework for what ethical AI means and needs to look like and can therefore be measured against. And I think in some ways, this is really, really problematic. A lot of what my work is trying to do is to articulate why ethics looks different here, why there are difficult, different ethical challenges here and different value systems very many different value systems across the continent that we need to draw on in thinking about the particular response we have to AI and to the fourth industrial revolution. In fact, 
I'm going as far as saying that I think the rest of the world could benefit enormously from what the African system and African human rights system, which, which has work around balancing different competing rights, thinking about self-determination, thinking about the role of traditional leaders, thinking about protecting indigenous uh, uh, knowledge systems, thinking about community rights. All of these, I think would be very valuable, very valuable kind of principles and, and, and values that the global scene could benefit from in thinking about the problems that they're trying to address through quite limited frameworks around um, AI and the fourth industrial revolution. So in Europe at the moment, the GDPR, and it's expansive, and there's a slight kind of legislative overreach in terms of the fact that it's a data protection privacy law that is being used or being hoped to be used in ways to address various kind of human rights concerns, various ethical concerns with the 4IR with the use of AI. And I think, you know, we come to a head here, we come to a space where data protection law will only go so far and will not address the full suite of ethical concerns that, that we are faced with. So one of the things that data protection law provides for is if you de-identify your information, your personal information that you want to process and use, it is no longer personal information, it no longer falls under this law but all the big data analytics that then can be used to develop algorithms that are biased, that have discriminatory effects upon people's lives, all of that then falls outside of the reach of that data protection law. And that's, that's the law we have in Poppyia. So we have to go kind of broader. We have to think in, in broader ways, but in ways that are mindful of local value systems that draw upon local value systems so that those local value systems respond to and address the local problems we're faced with. Thanks, Gary. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. Um, I do have another question from a participant, but I just wanted to give an opportunity to other panelists who may want to add to what Rachel has said on this point. Um, otherwise, I'll read out the next question. Um, Okay, I'm not seeing any hands uh, or anything else at the moment, so I'll read out the next question. Um, and this, I suppose, just puts a, a different um, sort of perspective on on uh, whether or not, if we look if we look at the breadth of um, of the need for establishing human rights standards, whether in legislation or regulations or a charter. Um, there's, there's a question you had that looks back to the third generation of rights um, when it we were already aware, let's say globally, we were aware that technology, uh, the third industrial revolution was already having an effect. Um, and already we, we did develop law, I suppose, for example, on, on labor rights um, in response to, um, to uh, that sort of thing. Um, to the, in, the third industrial revolution, but was it a mistake to not incorporate specifically technology into human rights earlier, such as you know, mechanization as part of the third industrial revolution? When we had those third generation of rights, um, which include, for example, environmental rights or socioeconomic rights, did we just simply extend the playing field? Um, and was that a mistake? for us not to take account of the impact of the third industrial revolution. And 
uh, I suppose the implicit question, is it not too late altogether to try and play catch up um, on the fourth industrial revolution, which is even perhaps more difficult to manage because of its cross-border impacts and its, its immediacy, let's say. Um, any, any of the panelists want to offer a response to that or another? Yeah, I think, I think I'll give an answer to that one. Okay, thank I you. Think, thank you, Prof. I think, I think the law is, is a relatively liquid thing. It's not a solid state, um, you know, piece of object. It's, it's a very liquid um, type of situation which is affected by the times that we live in. I, I would like to accept that even during the third industrial revolution, we did become aware of, of human rights and how they affect, um, you know, the, the third industrial revolution. I mean, in the third industrial revolution, that is where we started recognizing data protection, you know, personal information. Um, maybe because now we, our technologies have improved, our law also needs to improve. So, you know, I think it's a situation of, like I said, of the times. Um, when, when you, in the 80s, you were worried about um, cassettes recording from LPs, um, in, 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 in the 90s and 2000s, you were worried about CD-ROMs, and, and now in, 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 in 2010, 2020, we are worried about storage devices that can take gigs and gigs and gigs of information. So I think with the changing times, with you know, the, the technologies improving, I think that is where now our courts and the law itself have had to respond in a very quick manner uh, whereas in previous instances, the response was very slow. I think that is the only difference, but there's always been a response from a human rights perspective. Thank you. Uh, Rachel, I see you, you've unmuted. You wanted to comment? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a really, really interesting question. So human rights were designed to kind of be the first principles of what it meant to be human in a society of other humans collectively. It was supposed to be the kind of first principles of, of, of all things, noting that society will change and that there will be differences. So in some ways, a tech neutral kind of set of values. Um, and we see this with a law like Popia. Popia was designed to kind of be tech neutral, to note that questions around privacy and data protection are going to change as the technology changes, so it puts in place a series of principles um, that will be applicable across this kind of changing dynamic environment. And then with the third industrial revolution, there did come questions around, are our human rights enough? Do we need to think about, for example, a right to the internet? Now, there's a lot of debate around this. And in one sense, the internet is an enabler for other rights, for freedom of expression, for example, but it is an also a space where human rights are violated and contravened. With the fourth industrial revolution, and we've not got there yet, the debate has not got there yet, but it may very well be challenging the very idea of what it means to be human. 
the fourth industrial revolution is offering technologies for the potential to upload your brain, to live beyond the moment of human death. So there may well be a point and we need to put in place the kind of conditions of possibility within our intellectual thinking and our intellectual frameworks to be able to get to that point where we have to critically consider, do our human rights, the human rights frameworks we have, are they living and liquid enough to cover the full extent of how the 4IR may be challenging the very notion of what it means to be human and to live in a human society. Um, I think everybody uh, has seen the, uh, the comment in the chat box um, about the, the uh, social media charter and, and how different forms of, of hurtful speech um, need to be regulated, perhaps even if they don't cross the threshold into, into hate speech. But I just wanted to highlight that. Possibly one of the panelists would want to um, talk to that issue. But in the meantime, there's another uh, comment that I've received um, from Chanel, and I'll just read this out. I think this is not um, available in the general chat box. Um, thank you for the informative discussion and the important book. Just a comment, when I presented at the workshop uh, that's the Human Rights Commission workshop in March 2020. I noted the digital divide, but at the same time indicated that it will raise tough questions of resource prioritization for government in the light of the persistent violation of various socioeconomic rights, such as the right to basic education, water and food, etc. On the same day, the first case of COVID-19 in South Africa was announced. The world has since fundamentally changed and our new world shows how key technology is and can be in realizing our rights. For example, remote learning and health diagnostics, et cetera. Um, and in that context, uh, Chanel raises the new draft data and cloud policy, which reflects a new drive to ensure that South Africa is brought into the third industrial revolution and fourth industrial revolution. However, it will be extremely expensive to implement this vision. And therefore a whole of society approach at the global level is necessary to attract responsible investment that focuses on achieving human rights and sustainable development. So not sure if anybody wants to comment on any aspect of that. I see that we have officially just uh, three minutes left, um, but I believe we can go on for a few minutes beyond 1.30 um, if we need it. So th those are uh, important, I think, observations and contributions. Are there any responses from either members of the panel or another member of um, the, the another participant? So, Hands Gary, up. just, just to say if, if Chanel wants to, if Chanel can be unmuted um, and can join us, and because Chanel's yeah. been leading some really exciting work at the, the Human Rights Commission around this and was one of the contributors to the book. Okay, yes, um, indeed. Um, Moses, are you able to, to unmute um, Chanel? And Chanel, do you wish to take advantage of the opportunity? Um, just not seeing a hand at the moment. I see there's a new, um, Chanel, is that you with a hand up? Um, I'm just scrolling through names. Um, Chanel, if, if you want to go ahead and speak, please do. Um, I see, yes, your hand is up and you're indicating you are keen to chat. Thank you. Please go ahead. 
Moses, is, is Chanel unmuted? Yeah, check in. Chanel, I, I see your hand. Can you just check if you're unmuted? You're, you're welcome to comment, Chanel. We're uh, we're not hearing you. Just trying uh, to message that okay, she. She's saying now. I'm sorry, I'm not unmuted. So mm -hmm. yeah, if you could. Moses, are you saying that you have now un unmuted her? No, no. Because and I'm is it that, uh, unmute. I, sorry, Moses, I didn't hear what. Ah, Chanel, I think we can hear you now. Go ahead, um, please, Chanel. Thank you very much. So maybe just to um, yes, so note that the the social media charter is ongoing, but to to pick up with Rachel's point um, about you know access to the internet being a um, a standalone right versus an enabling right, and just to note that the Human Rights Commission has been. Um, you know, consulting with various stakeholders, including the APC and so forth, about monitoring the right of access to internet in the context of uh, its monitoring of other rights, including, of course, crucially, um, socioeconomic rights, because we constantly see um, the linkages between access to the internet, access to information, also as an enabling right, and then the realization of these various rights. Um, and to note that, you know, um, we can see it's not an official position of the commission, but we can see the discourse really rapidly evolving um, because it was <clears throat> sort of an either or dichotomous question of prioritization pre before COVID. It was, do we eradicate pit latrines and save children from falling to their death in these atrocious circumstances um, <clears throat> because schools don't meet basic infrastructure uh, standards? Or do we invest in SA Connect and the broadband policy? Um, and we saw government making those prioritizing decisions by cutting funding from, um, from the broadband initiatives to fund higher education um, at the end of uh, 2017. Um, and just to, to reiterate that the nature of the world and the, the nature of how we achieve these rights have now fundamentally changed. Um, so it's certainly necessary um, to highlight and give more prominence to the right of access to internet and to, to do whatever we can to mobilize resources to make that possible, especially for the most vulnerable groups in our society who are those who are missing out on education completely and who are vulnerable either because of um, them being poor or um, being poor and then, of course, being in, for example, rural locations where we simply lack the infrastructure necessary. Um, so because of the, the evolution of society here and globally um, due to the pandemic, it will certainly also affect the way the Human Rights Commission um, monitors uh, the achievement of access to internet as an enabling sub-right um, in terms of the substantive rights because the connections have never been more clear um, and it's, it's, it's apparent now how crucial um, connectivity is uh, to take us towards our constitutional division, uh, constitutional vision of a more equal society. So that would just be my little two cents worth. Thank you very much. Just, uh, thank you very much. I think we, we've also seen um, in our recent experience how important Access to information, the access to information right as a key enabling right is vital for the realization of 
socioeconomic rights, for example. Um, one thinks then of just extending that to the right to the internet um, and what that might mean for rural farm farmers um, and access to markets and the way that there have been innovations, I think around the continent um, and elsewhere where farmers are, are able to see where there is demand, which market should I send my produce to this week or this month? Um, and so there's a way of making a more inclusive economy, uh, the kinds of issues that Michael has talked about earlier. Um, I think I've sort of received an indication that unless there are any more questions and that I don't see any in the inbox or in the chat box, um, we need to try to draw to an end these proceedings. Um, I see we're growing to uh, more participants now, and that might be because um, uh, people have only just become available now, or maybe you're already online for the two o'clock uh, webinar. Another important topic coming up, um, just to tell you briefly about that from two till 4 p.m. on the same link. Um, it's a very exciting workshop on, on the African narratives on um, artificial intelligence, which is co-hosted with the University of Cambridge. So if you, if you need to log off, um, that's fine. And you can use the same connection to log on for that. Um, and that starts at two. Um, and I, I'm just seeing there's another message popping into the inbox. And uh, Professor Snail is saying he needs to, needs to leave. Sure. All right. Thank you very much, Professor. We really appreciate all the panelists joining us today. Um, thank you so much to, to everybody for sharing their insights. Um, as so many of you are at the coalface, uh, to use a third industrial revolution term, um, uh, the, at the coalface of this uh, new technology and this new generation of, of human interaction. Um, are there any final comments? We do, we, we do have five minutes for final one 30 second comments, I think from any of the panelists as we wrap up. Um, I've got Things, Michael. Okay, Michael first and then Saliso. Uh, Michael got in first. Okay. I hear number, you. One, number one, uh, in picking up Rachel's point, I think theoretically we are all cyborgs and we should all go and read Donna Haraway's feminist cyborg theory this weekend. My point number two is that this, this debate is at the coalface of geopolitical dynamics too, and we would be remiss to forget that. Are we going to go towards a US model in which there's less regulation? Are we going to go to a China-Russia model in which the state has more power to make decisions in the collective interests, but uh, individual rights may be curtailed? Are we going to take a European model which protects rights with a greater degree of regulation than, than the US, or are we going to craft a model that is distinct to South Africa. This, this to me is, it's, it's kind of a meta question, but it's always going to be salient in the politics and, and in the regulation that we're talking about. Thank you, Michael. And then Silisa, you wanted to contribute too? I just want to thank everybody, but also uh, you know, following from the point uh, which has been, been raised by Michael, we certainly need to develop uh, our own standards as South Africa, informed by our own history and context. And I think uh, we have shown that we can also contribute uh, in the advancement of advancement, advancement of human rights and many other issues. So um, I support that. And thanks to everybody else. 
Thank you very much, Celiso. Um, Mark, any final words from you? Checking the head. Okay. Um, may I leave it then to? Uh, I'll, I'll leave it to Rachel if you have any final final closing comments. Um, no, thank you so much, uh, Mark. Yeah, thank you so much, Gary. Um, and thank you particularly to our colleagues from the South African Human Rights Commission to you, Sadiso, for your leadership here. We are looking forward to ongoing collaborations and working together to, to really make a change in, in an area where change is sorely needed. So thank you to you all for joining now. Please stay on. We've got a really exciting seminar happening at 2 p.m. So you've got like 20 minutes to grab a coffee and we will see you uh, back here at 2 p.m. All right. Thank you very much. And I hope everybody, you, the book continues to be useful to you in each of your walks of life. Thank you very much for joining us today and all the best. Cheerio. Bye-bye. Yeah.